Matthew 15. If you're using a Bible provided, one under a seat in front of you or on the row in, in the chairs near you, it's page 1043. 1043, and I encourage you to open the Bible and uh, to look for yourself to make sure uh, that what the preacher has to say comes from the Word of God and is not something that the Word of God doesn't teach. So don't just trust the preacher. And I would say that in general, don't just trust people. Why not? Well, no matter what age you are, you probably have learned that you can't trust everybody. But what if I told you you can't, in one sense, truly trust anybody? Because all of us are sinners. And all of us are prone to sin and given to sin, and so you have to be careful. And uh, so, I don't know where I heard this. This is, not, this is familiar. Trust, but verify. You know, so some of those things. Anyway, that's not in my notes. We're going to move right along. I don't know where that came from. Open your Bible. Follow along. Let's look at, uh, before we look at God's Word, though, I just want to catch us up on where we're at. We're in verse 10 of Matthew 15, and today's account flows right out of last week's text. And so this, uh, verse 10, follows right on the heels of verses 1 through 9. They are one event tied together, so you'll need to, hopefully you heard last week's message and you know where we're at. Last week, the Pharisees attacked Jesus by charging him with breaking the traditions of the elders, disobeying the man-made commandments of the Pharisees. And in verses 1 through 9, Jesus didn't address the specific tradition, the washing of hands before eating, that the Pharisees brought up. So they brought up a specific charge. Jesus didn't address the specific commandment, the man-made commandment, but he addressed and changed the focus from disobeying on breaking man-made commandments to breaking God's commandments. But I want you to realize the Pharisees weren't really focused on the tradition or the defilement that the tradition pointed to of, of the command. So though they brought up the command, they weren't focused on the command. And so Jesus didn't focus on the command either. It was just an opportunity to attack Jesus. So they really didn't want to address hand washing and the defilement that was supposed to come if you didn't wash your hands. And so Jesus doesn't address them from that idea. Yet, listen very carefully, defilement is an extremely important topic. The Bible talks about defilement. God has much to say about being unclean. Spiritually unclean, not necessarily physically unclean. So just in case you want to know, washing hands before you eat is not a biblical command. So if you are going to have that as a household command in your household, that's great. But Jesus doesn't address physical cleanliness before eating, though I would suggest it as a wisdom issue to wash your hands before you eat. But that wasn't Jesus' point or the, the ideas in the Bible about unclean. But when the Pharisees attacked him, Jesus was not going to answer the fool according to his folly. He wasn't going to get pulled into defending his disobedience of man-made commandments with hypocrites who were intentionally disobeying God's commandments. So this, this is a word of, of caution here. The Bible in Proverbs talks about don't, don't answer the fool according to their folly. That means don't get sucked into addressing concerns on the level of the person who's raising the concerns when they are a fool. So when they attack Jesus about hand washing, Jesus doesn't address them on the foolishness of hand washing or that issue. He addresses them on what their real attack was. He doesn't answer them according to their folly, but he does answer them on what the real issue was. And so he wasn't going to get pulled into that because he wasn't going to get pulled into an argument with hypocrites. 
The Pharisees were hardened soil, and therefore there was nothing to teach them. They just wanted to fight. Do you know people like that? Do you know irreligious people, non-Christian people, I shouldn't say irreligious people. That's how we would say it. Everyone is religious in one sense. So uh, they, would say they're not re- they would say they're not religious, but they, they, they just want to attack. They want to fight. Don't engage them on that level. Don't answer the fool because if someone doesn't want to know, if someone is unteachable, then all we're going to get into is a fight that's going to accomplish nothing. Be very careful of those things. And Jesus doesn't engage them on that level. He engages them, but not on that level. But notice that the crowds and the disciples are different. We're talking about the examples of different soils from the parable of the soils. Jesus doesn't miss the opportunity to teach the crowds on the issue of defilement, nor to teach the disciples. So he's going to deal with defilement because it's important, but he's not going to deal with the Pharisees on defilement because they were unteachable. And so that's where we find ourselves, Matthew 15. Before we read the scripture, let's pray together. Lord, we understand that it's only by your grace, only by your mercy, that we have ears to hear this morning, that we can understand this morning, that we are teachable this morning. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would soften our hearts to receive the truth, to be teachable from your word, the truth that you have given to us. May it transform us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 15. We're going to start in verse 10 and read through verse 20. Please follow along in your Bible as I read. And he, that is Jesus, and he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is God's inerrant, inspired word. It is his revelation. May we listen to it this morning. This passage teaches us that King Jesus teaches, so this passage teaches us what Jesus teaches. King Jesus teaches about true spiritual defilement. True, what is true spiritual defilement? So I use the word defilement. What does defile mean? Isaiah asked that question this morning before we came to church, and I already had it down. So I assume you might want to know what that means as well. It means common. Oh, what's wrong with being common? Well, because with the Jewish people, common meant unclean. So unclean and common. So, I mean, maybe in your translation, you have the word unclean. That's a very good and helpful translation. Unclean, polluted is another synonym. So how concerned are we with pollution? Are you concerned with pollution? What kind of pollution are you concerned with? Our world, 
And when I say our world, our civilization, our country, and those who uh, lead our country and uh, in all kinds of ways are very concerned with pollution. But notice the kind of pollution they're most concerned about. They're concerned about the pollution of our environment. They're concerned with the pollution of our bodies. What pollution are they not concerned about? The pollution of our souls, the pollution of our hearts. Notice every religion has pollution. Just know what kind of pollution each religion is concerned about. So secularists are religious because they are concerned with pollution. Now, when Jesus talks about the pollution of the heart, they say, Who that's crazy, pollution of the heart. But every can, every wrapper, every emission, everything has to be regulated to make sure there is no pollution. In fact, very, before very long, probably you'll be drinking out of paper straws all the time. Because you know how much plastic pollutes our planet. And so paper straws are much better for our planet. Notice how much the religious secularist will mandate very small laws to the very intricacies of your life in their religion. But if we talk about hand washing, oh, that's crazy talk. Religious hand washing. So just, I don't know. I, I don't know why I'm talking about this stuff. It's not my notes. We're moving on. Pollution. Internal pollution is our focus. But notice, everyone's concerned with pollution of some kind. But Jesus is going to turn the understanding of the Jewish people of defilement upside down. What kind of defilement were they concerned about? External defilement. They are, they're concerned about what I'm touching, who I'm touching, where I'm touching, how I get defiled. And therefore, if my hands are defiled by touching a Gentile or touching something that is unclean, according to the law or according to man-made law, then I must make sure I wash my hands so I don't make the food I'm going to eat unclean, polluted, and then take that pollution into my body and pollute my body inside. All right, that's the idea. But Jesus turns that upside down and says that the teaching is different than that. It's, it's, it's opposite. Now, this teaching might be simple to understand. So if you read it and you heard it, you say, okay, good, I got it, Pastor, we can move along. I, I get what Jesus is saying. It's not so much the difficulty of what Jesus says in understanding, it's the acceptance do you truly accept what Jesus says about our internal pollution? You say, I get it. I get what he's saying, but, but do we buy it? Do we agree with him? Well, so how does Jesus start? Jesus, first of all, gives a parable on defilement to the crowds. So after the confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. So the audience has changed from the Pharisees to the crowds. Notice that. It's changed from the hardened soil of the Pharisees to the thorny, shallow soil of the crowds. People who were following Jesus in one sense, but not followers of Jesus as disciples. There's different groups. Now, you must remember back in Matthew 14, 34, that Jesus has begun to teach the crowds in parables only. In parables only. All these things, it might be Matthew 13. I might be wrong on that chapter. So you might want to double check that chapter. I think it's Matthew 13. I can do that. What am I talking about? I've got a Bible. Matthew 13. I don't want to give the wrong, the wrong verse. Matthew 13, 34. I, th I thought that was wrong. Matthew 13, 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Jesus' ministry has changed because the crowds are not following him as Lord and Savior. They're not following him as the Messiah. They're following him for the benefits. And for the first 
two years of his ministry, he had taught them openly using parables only as illustrations. He would teach the truth and then give an illustration, a parable as a metaphor to explain the truth. Now he's just giving the illustration, the parable, and not explaining anything. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? I love stories. I want to go to church and hear stories all the time. Well, these aren't stories that make sense if you don't know the truth. These are stories that, if they're not explained, leave you befuddled. How about that word for a Sunday morning? A parable that's not explained is nothing better than a riddle. How many of you like riddles? Yeah, you like riddles. That's great. How do you know if the riddles, how do you know if you figured out the riddle? Someone's got to have the answer key. Because sometimes bad riddles have more than one answer. So the idea here is he's teaching only in the riddle with no answer key, no explanation. And that's a form of judgment on the crowds. Yet, notice carefully, if anyone wants to know what the parable means, all they have to do is ask. Submit themselves and ask for help. But you know the arrogance of the crowds? He says a riddle and they're like, got it. Or don't got it, don't care. Do we have any food handy? You know, I, I need a little healing. I'm a little hungry. I'm not so concerned. With, notice that's why Jesus has now moved to parables. And we know this is a parable. At first, it might not seem like a parable because it seems to, pretty straightforward. But notice what Peter said to Jesus. He said, explain the parable to us. It's a parable. And here's the question. Well, before I get there, they must hear and understand. That's what Jesus starts with. He says, hear and understand. If you're going to get anything out of this parable, you must understand it. Back in Matthew 13, he repeated the phrase over and over, he who has ears, let him hear. So, hey, hear and understand. Then he tells them something they can't understand. He says, if you have ears to hear, hear. But what if you don't have ears? What if you don't understand? How do you get ears, spiritual ears, to understand Jesus' teaching in the parables? Only if God gives you ears to hear. If you don't understand the truth about the Bible, you must cry out to God to give you the ears, the understanding. That's why almost every Sunday, unless I forget for some reason, we pray a prayer of illumination to ask God to illuminate our hearts because without the Holy Spirit helping us understand, we won't have the ears or the understanding to get what God is saying. We are dependent upon God to understand spiritual truth. But what if God hasn't given you the ears? Then it's just going to go right over your head. You're not going to get it. And so you must cry out to God this morning. If you don't understand the scripture, it's because God hasn't given you ears to hear. And so he must, in his mercy and grace, to give you ears before you can even get the truth that will save, that will sanctify. You must be given that gift by God. Now notice, it's very clear what he says. The parable is this. You are not defiled by what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth. You are not defiled by what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth. What does that mean? If you don't have Jesus' explanation that comes to the disciples, what comes out of your mouth that defiles you? Would you know? Would the crowds know? They say, well, I know exactly what it is because Jesus told us. Well, we've got the Bible, but the crowds don't have this. They don't have the explanation. You think you know without the explanation? How would you know if you knew? How do you know if you got it right? See, that's the problem with these parables. But notice the change what happens in verse 12, the change of audience. We've gone from the Pharisees in verses 1 through 9 to the crowds, verses 10 and 11, and then in 12, then the disciples came to him. So now Jesus addresses the disciples' concern. 
<laughs> and like a lot of people, the concern is off topic. So Jesus has this parable, and then the disciples bring something up that has nothing to do with what he just said. You ever been doing that? You ever been having devotions with your family? And you're reading the passage, and you go to explain it, and your kids start talking, and they're talking about everything about, except what you were talking about in the family devotions. You're like, wait, what does that have to do with what I just read? Oh, nothing. I was just, I had a thought in my head. Something was going on. I thought, and so the disciples are like kids. Anyway, what's their concern? The disciples were concerned with the Pharisees being offended. That's their concern. This is, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And the disciples say this as if Jesus wouldn't have said it if he had known that the Pharisees would be offended. Did you know you offended these people? Oh, I'm sorry. If I knew this was offensive, I wouldn't have said it. Wait a second. He just called them hypocrites. How many times have you ever thought that calling someone a hypocrite wasn't offensive? Like, I thought that was a compliment. <laughs> so Jesus is not concerned with being offensive, especially to hypocrites. And so Jesus knew the effect of what he said, and he's not worried about that. Why not? Notice this carefully. Because hypocrites are offended by the truth. Hypocrites are offended by the truth. Did Jesus say anything that was wrong? Did he lie? Did he speak something that was, was false? So why are they offended with the truth? Now, let me say a few things here. We must not intentionally seek to cause offense by how we speak the truth. Because the truth is offensive enough. Speak the truth. The truth is offensive. So don't try to unnecessarily, intentionally offend people by how you speak the truth. Yet, now I'm switching. I'm going to go back and forth. Stay with me. Some Christians are far more concerned with how we speak than what we speak. So we have Christians who are the tone police instead of the truth police. Instead of worrying that what is said is true, they're more concerned with how we speak than what we speak. Now, as Christians, we should be concerned with both, correct? We should be concerned with what we speak and how we speak, but which one is more important? What if someone speaks the truth in an, in an intentionally offensive manner? Should we have a problem with that? Yeah. But should we have a bigger problem with that than someone who says really nice things in a really nice manner but doesn't speak the truth? Which one is a bigger problem? The lack of truth or poor tone? Sometimes Christians are more concerned with the how than the what. And that has got it upside down. But we have to understand that truth matters more than tone and yet tone matters. I love what Matthew Henry says. He says this, Christ would teach us that though in indifferent things, we must be tender of giving offense. Old school language for, and things that aren't that important, don't just walking around, don't walk around offending people for no good reason. Yet we must not, for fear of that, fear of giving offense, evade any truth or duty. For fear of giving an offense, we must not evade any truth or any duty. Truth must be owned and duty done. And if any be, be offended, it is his own fault. It is scandal not given but taken. Are people scandalized by the truth? If so, is that our fault? If people are offended by the truth, is it the fault of the person speaking the truth? Should we not say things that people will take offense at if they're true? No, the scandal's theirs. 
We speak the truth in love, not concerned about offending people, but a concern for the truth. And we must realize the truth offends. You know what offends most of all? The gospel. In fact, the Bible tells us that the gospel is offensive. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 24. But we preach Christ crucified. And preaching Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It's offensive. It's a stumbling block. That's where stumbling block is to throw something in the way of someone to cause them to stumble over it. So Jewish people will stumble over the gospel, will be offended by the gospel. Are the Pharisees offended by the gospel? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the gospel is offensive because the gospel starts with offensive news. What's the offensive news? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What, you're calling me a sinner? You're saying I've done some sinful things? You're saying I can't get to God on my own? You're saying I can't get to heaven by my good works? Yep. Well, that's offensive. Yes, it is. It is offensive. It's offensive to people full of autonomy and full of pride and full of a desire for self-worth. It's offensive to say you're a sinner. It's offensive. So if you're going to not offend sinners, you're going to not preach the gospel because you're going to have to preach a gospel of acceptance and affirmation. You're good enough. You're fine. You're decent. You're kind. You have more wrong rights than wrongs. And so you, I'm sure you'll go to heaven. God loves everyone. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. And so we have to understand what we're getting into. Now, Jesus teaches, secondly, that hypocrites are destined for judgment. Hypocrites are destined for judgment. So he goes on to say who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees are not planted by God the Father. Therefore, they will be rooted up. Whatever is not planted by God will be rooted up. And these Pharisees, they're not planted by God. They will be rooted up. If you go back to Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. That parable taught us that God the Father determines what plants are wheat and what plants are weeds. Who will live forever with him and who will die forever in eternity. He determines all the weeds that will be burned in the fiery furnace. And so don't follow hypocrites because hypocrites are destined for judgment. And the Pharisees are destined for judgment. They will be rooted up. Jesus teaches also that hypocrites are blind guides. Hypocrites are blind guides. Therefore, don't pay any attention to them. Ignore them. I find this illustration hilarious, don't you? Now take, just understand, the Bible's full of humor. Sometimes we miss it. The Pharisees are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they both fall in a pit. Can you picture it? Yes, you should be chuckling. It's okay. It's okay to laugh in church every now and then. So yeah, the blind leading the blind, and they fall into a pit. And the craziest thing about the blind guides is that they don't think they're blind. They think they see just fine. They see so well that not only do they see where they're going, they can see well enough to tell you where you should go. But in fact, they're blind. And when you follow a blind guide, where do you end up? In a pit. Both of you end up. You're following them right off the edge. Can you see it? Jesus' humor is here. Hopefully you can see that. Someone who can't see is claiming not only to see where to go, but the ability to lead others. But the truth is, they end up in a pit, which is Jesus teaching that hypocrites always lead others to disaster. Hypocrites always lead others to disaster. 
Now, how can we know who the blind guides are today? How can we know who the Pharisees are today? How can we know who the hypocrites are today? Can you, do you know how to tell a blind guide from a seeing guide? Well, it's obvious. Blind guides wear sunglasses and have a walking stick. No, not all the time. Not these kind of blind guides. They've got their eyes wide open. Their eyes look clear. They're saying they can see. They're saying they know where to go. They have all the information. These are blind guides, but they're, but they're blind. They are absolutely convinced they see better than anyone, but they are blind. How can you tell the difference between a blind guide and a seeing guide? How do you know who to follow? I think this is one of the most important questions of our day, not just spiritually, but in everything. How do you know who to listen to? How do you know truth from error? How do you know who's speaking the truth? This becomes tremendously important, first of all, most importantly, in spiritual matters, and that's where we focus. How do you know who can tell you how to get to heaven? How do you know whose message of salvation is true and whose message is false? There's more than one salvation message preached. There's more than one God proclaimed. There's more than one religion. How do you know who can see and who is blind? Is it because they are convinced? Is someone's conviction, absolute dogmatic conviction that they have the truth, is that enough to follow someone? No, the Pharisees were there. Is it enough to have a book that claims absolute truth? No, there's more than one book. How do you know who can see and who are blind? Well, you say all truth is truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. So all the blind people are just as blind as anyone else or can see just as much as anybody else. And who can tell the difference? What's the standard? I mean, just think about that. It's not whether you can see or not. It's whether you think you can see. And if you think you can see, you can. And if you think you're blind, you're blind. What? Who can see? Who can't see? That's an objective, not subjective truth that can be tested and found out. <laughs> you know, you go to the eye doctor and there's methods to test whether you can see, but there's an easier test. You don't need an eye doctor to know someone's blind. Just dig a pit in the, in, in the yard. Dig a pit in the yard and say, hey, let's go play in the yard. It's real simple. You know, throw a, <laughs> you know, have you ever, you ever played that game? I know you said one game. The dig a pit in the yard game? No, not that game. Who would do that? No one would do that. That is evil. I mean, a game where you get your brothers or your sisters, but for me it was brothers, and you blindfold them, make sure they can't see, and then you lead them around the yard. And after a while of leading them around the yard, you decided to have some fun. You decide, because they're falling right behind you, because they know that if they stay right behind you, nothing about, they can, you can feel. If but how can you lead them so that they won't know that they're about ready to walk into a tree? Now, no one else probably played that game. I'm sorry, no one else seems to be getting my point. I, I don't even know where I was going with that point, but that's the game. How do you know if someone's blind? If you can walk them into a tree, they're blind. Anyone who would see would stop before they fall into the pit or walk into the tree. So there's, there's some simple ways of testing this, but the question is, how can you tell if someone is blind today? People who claim to see, people that claim to have the truth. It's a tremendously important that has all kinds of ramifications. And um, more to be said about that at a, at a future time. We were focusing on that spiritually, but there's so many applications uh, to what we do with people who claim to have the truth. 
what happens when there's two competing claims of truth? How do you determine which one is true? Or how do you determine that both of them are false? Because they both can't be true at the same time, can they? How do you determine that? How do you work through that spiritually and in life? Challenging. But uh, think through that as a Christian. God has given us what we need. Do you know it? Thirdly, Jesus explains the parable on defilement to the disciples. So Peter says, explain the parable to us. He finally gets back on track. And so, first of all, notice that this explanation is only for the disciples, not the crowds. It's not for the Pharisees. This is just for the disciples. But notice Jesus begins with some frustration. Are you still without understanding? How come the disciples don't get it? How do they not listen to the parable and already know the answer? The reason why I believe he's frustrated is because in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 through 35, he's already taught this basic principle. He says, speaking of the Pharisees again, see, in case you want to know if Jesus was ever harsh to the Pharisees in any place else, he called them a brood of vipers. He's not worried about offending them. That's in passing. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the good person, out of his good treasure, that's his good heart, brings forth good. So the good person is known to be good because he has a good heart, a good treasure, and out of his mouth comes good. And the evil person is evil because he has an evil heart, and out of his evil heart comes evil things. Has Jesus taught this before? Yes. It's not what goes into your mouth, but what comes out that defiles you. How can the, Pharise- how can the disciples don't remember? That's, that's pointing to Jesus' frustration. So that's Jesus frustrated, but he's patient, far more patient than we might be. He's patient, and he goes on, even in his frustration, to explain the truth. So in verse 17, he teaches that what goes into the mouth is food, and it brings no defilement. Do you not see? Well, if you're not blind, you should be able to see. Whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled. Anybody need a biological lesson at this point? Everybody get it, what it's saying? You're saying, well, I used to get expelled from school, but I'm not sure it's the same thing. It's not, but it's the same idea. Um, <laughs> I won't go there. Anyway, it's just too easy sometimes. You're like, you know, what can you kind of throw out there that gets the kids' attention? Anyway, whatever goes into the mouth is food. It brings no defilement. That's the point. Food is only food. Now, just in case you wonder, at this point, Jesus is teaching that all of the purity laws of the Old Testament are done away with. There was clean and unclean foods in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament people, the Old Covenant people, the Jews, were supposed to follow that. And then Jesus teaches this, and then he teaches Peter later in Acts chapter 10 and makes it clear again, it's already clear here, that it's not uncleanliness that comes in, it's uncleanliness that goes out. And so all of the purity laws of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament, are done away with in this teaching, as well as tying that to Acts chapter 10. You can study that. Mark 7 says that explicitly. I think it's Mark 7, the same account in Mark. Secondly, what comes out of the mouth is from the heart, and this defiles us. What comes out of the mouth is from the heart, and this is what defiles us. So that's what Jesus says. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. So why does what comes out of the heart defile you? He goes on to explain, because what comes out of the heart is sin, and sin is what defiles us. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So it's very simple. What goes in doesn't defile you. What's, that, what's, what's 
What's the stuff that goes in? It's just food. Food doesn't defile you. What defiles you is what comes out. What's the stuff that comes out? Now Jesus explains. It's the stuff from the heart. Why does the heart defile you? Because out of the heart comes evil and wickedness. And he explains what that is. And where does Jesus go to define sin? Can you tell where Jesus goes to define sin? Look at the list. Is Jesus just making this up out of thin air? Is he coming up with his own teaching on what defiles you? What pollutes you internally? No, he goes back to the Old Testament law. Murder, adultery, theft, false witness. In that order, Jesus gives them. And in that order, the Ten Commandments give them. In Exodus chapter 20, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. That's four of the seven, I think, here that Jesus mentions. And he gives them in the same order. He's going back to the Old Testament. He's defining sin and evil and pollution by God's law. We've talked a lot about God's law, and I want to show it again here. But notice that the first thing is evil thoughts. And evil thoughts aren't mentioned in the Old Testament law. And that's what he starts with. How does he start with something that the Old Testament doesn't even mention specifically? Because he has dealt with this specifically on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. See it? But I say to you that if anyone is angry with his brother in his heart, he has. So he then brings evil thoughts and puts them on a level of outward sin. He brings inward sin to the surface and talks about that. So Jesus is now referring to his own teaching, his own interpretation of the Old Testament law in the Sermon on the Mount. He brings up anger. He brings up lust. Jesus expanded on the Old Testament law to show that it's not just outward, external sin that breaks God's law, but it's internal evil thoughts and desires in the heart that also break God's law. That's not specifically mentioned in the Old Testament, but Jesus has taught it in his authority. He's expanded it, and that's where he goes here as well. Now, also notice he brings up sexual immorality. Now, that's a broad category of sexual sins in the Old Testament. In the Ten Commandments, adultery is the only sexual sin mentioned. But it's not the only sexual sin mentioned in all of the sexual sins in the Old Covenant law. So you can read the list and, and see them in Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 22. Adultery is a category hook. Of course, adultery is adultery. But adultery is connected to all sexual immorality, and the Old Testament goes far beyond just adultery. You can read the list and go over that. Slander, last thing mentioned. Slander is mentioned in the the law, just not in the Ten Commandments. Leviticus 19, 16. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not go around as a slanderer. Leviticus 19, 16. Don't be a slanderer. Don't stand up against the life of your neighbor. This is sin. And so God, uh, Jesus Christ goes back to the Old Testament covenant. He also goes back to his own teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, talking about the inward, internal sin. And here he hits it again. And what he's teaching us, most importantly, is we have a heart problem, not a hand problem. We have a heart problem, not a hand problem. We have a sin problem, not a food problem. We have an internal problem, not an external problem. 
We have a spiritual problem, not a physical problem. So therefore, we need our hearts, not our hands, to be washed clean. We don't need ritual purity through religious observance, but we need real internal purity. Because inwardly, we are full of sin and wicked. Our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are diseased. Our hearts are full of wickedness, and we need internal transformation. So what if you have clean hands, but a dirty heart? What if you are able to abstain from outward sin, but inwardly you are filled with wicked thoughts and desires? Is it your hands that cause your heart to desire evil? Or is it your heart that wants evil things and your hands grab hold of them? Do your hands cause your heart to want or do does your heart cause your hands to grab? It's an internal, spiritual, purity problem of the heart. And the Bible does not say nice things about our unregenerate heart. Full of wickedness, full of deceit, full of anger, full of sin. That's what Jesus is saying. So what do you need here this morning? You're a sinner. If you are honest with yourself... You, could, you might be able to say, you know, I've never killed anybody. I've never committed adultery. In fact, I've never been married, so I couldn't even commit adultery. I've never stolen anything. And that's what you hear from people when you talk to them about their sin. They say, did you realize you're a sinner? They say, what do you mean? They say, well, have you kept God's law? And they say, well, I've never killed anybody. I've never committed adultery. And I've never stolen anything. And maybe I've never lied. And then you say, you sure about the not lying part? And you say, well, yeah, I've told a few small ones, you know, the little white ones. That's what we think. We think we've kept the law because we've kept three or four of the big ones. But what about all the rest of them? What about all of the laws in the old covenant? What about all the laws in the new covenant? What about all that God has said? What are you going to do with your sin? And what's the problem? Is it external sin or internal sin? That's the problem. We think the problem is external. What we do when the bigger problem is how we think and what we want. How do you change your wants? You are, you would consider yourself, this is how the world would turn it, you are an alcoholic. You call yourself an alcoholic. You see all the problems of alcoholism now, the Bible will call you a drunkard or a drunk, and I think that's a better way of talking about it, but, but for sake of conversation. As an alcoholic, I, I realize I have an addiction problem to alcohol, and so what must I do? I must stop drinking. That will fix it, won't it? Will stopping to drink fix your alcoholism? No, and in fact... Alcoholics Anonymous understands that. That's why for the rest of your life, even though you never drink, what are you? My name is Don, and I'm an alcoholic. Why? I haven't drank in 24 years. How, why am I still an alcoholic? Because stopping the activity doesn't change the desire. That's with every sin. You can cut off the behavior, but your heart wants what the heart wants. How do you change heart desires? How does someone's heart change so they never want to get drunk ever again? Never escape to alcohol. Never deal with their problems with alcohol. How do, how do you do that? 
That's our problem. Our heart's our problem. Of course our hands act. Of course our, our tongues act. Of course we do all kinds of wickedness externally. But the reason we do it is because our heart is sinful and wicked. So what does God do? What does he do in salvation that takes care of your desire problem, your want problem, your thought problem? What does God do? This is the promise of a new covenant, Ezekiel 36. He gives you a new heart. He gives you a transformed heart. He gives you a changed heart. He gives you a clean heart. Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. Oh, look, see, there's a little hand washing. Sprinkle some water on me and we'll just wash all the sin off. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. How does he do that? I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I'll give you new desires, new energy, new abundance. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Of course, it will be lived outward, but where does it start? Inward transformation leads to outward obedience. It's not the opposite. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. That's the promise of the gospel. The promise of the new covenant is by turning to Christ and trusting in what he did for you in living a perfect sinless life in dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, your sin, my sin and rising again the third day, earning our justification, our declaration of righteousness. You can be set free, not just externally, but internally. Because when you trust in Jesus Christ, he will give you a new heart. So do you want to know if you're a Christian today? I would ask, have you ever been transformed from the inside out? Not have you stopped doing some of your old habits, but have your desires changed? Maybe not completely. I'm not talking about sinless perfection outwardly or inwardly. But do you want righteousness where you didn't before? Do you want holiness? Do you want obedience? Or are you just fighting all of those things to try to put on the fruit of the gospel without the heart that comes with the gospel? You need to be transformed by trusting in Christ. And a great prayer to pray in Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's the cry of the Christian, and that's the cry to become a Christian. Trust in Jesus Christ. Plead with him to give you a brand new, clean heart. So I love what J.C. Ryle says. It's a little bit long, but you can stick with me, I think. What is the first thing we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to him? A broken and a contrite heart. What is the true circumcision? The circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with the heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request that wisdom makes of every one of us? My son, give me thine heart. Does God have your heart? And has God given you a new heart? Are you his? If you are not his, if you realize you don't have a new heart, a clean heart, here's what you must do. Cry out to God for a new heart. Cry out to God for a new heart. Ask him to take out your hard heart and give you a heart of submission and obedience. Trust in his son to pay for your sin, to make you clean, to give you a new heart.
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, can you have a new heart. In Christian, we need to realize that the battle for purity is a battle of the heart. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I've got a new heart. I've got new desires. So why are you still sinning? You still have sin coming out of the heart. That's a new heart. Well, it's a heart still battling sin. So cleanse me. Ask God to give you a clean heart. Ask God to cleanse you of all, from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Obey Christ from the heart. It's not just external obedience. It's internal desires and internal obedience. Defilement, pollution, uncleanliness is a problem of the heart. Let's pray. Father, work in us. Transform us. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't have a new heart, may they cry out to you. May they repent of their sin and turn to Jesus. Plead with you to give them what they can't get on their own, a new heart. And for every Christian here, may we see the wickedness of sin. May we see the pollution of sin internally. And cry out to you to transform us, to clean us from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.